0: Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. It's so hard to have a hit record these days. Hell, with all the music out there, it's nearly impossible to attract any kind of attention. All the noise and distractions and competition. If you're a new band with a debut record, you've got anywhere from 6 to 13 weeks to make an impression once that first single comes out. If you fail to achieve significant traction with radio and retail and with fans during that short window, you are in trouble. And if your record label doesn't make it happen for you with the second single, well, uh, let's just say I hope you didn't quit your day job. It wasn't always like this. Back in the day when music was harder to come by, a record label could afford to wait for a band to develop and mature through two, three, four, five albums. I mean, look at U2. They stumbled through their first two records before settling down with War, their third. Look at the Red Hot Chili Peppers they discovered themselves through three albums before they could deliver a little breakthrough with Mother's Milk and then the big breakthrough with Blood Sugar Sex Magic. And look at R.E.M. They released five indie albums, each better than the last, before they were signed to a big major label record deal. That was hard. They were on this treadmill of recording and touring and recording and touring with little downtime. But they wanted it bad, so they did what they had to do a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll, you know? You can say the same thing about the Black Keys. A lot of people might think these guys have, what, three records in their catalog? Uh, no, they have eight full albums. Two EPs, one live album, and close to two dozen singles. And unless you're a longtime fan or a hardcore fan, you may not know about some of this stuff. Let's fix that up for all the latecomers. This is Catching Up with with the black keys this is the ongoing history of new music the podcast edition with alan cross The Black Keys and Fever from their eighth studio album, Turn Blue, which came out on May 12, 2014. And yeah, it was their eighth album, which might come as a surprise to some people. They did a lot of hard work before they got famous and started winning Grammys. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. When Dan Auerbach and Patrick Carney almost accidentally came together in a band in 2001, they knew that they had a marathon in front of them. And to their credit, they stuck it out and they made it work. But boy, it took a long time. The first four Black Keys albums did almost nothing. The fifth offered hope. And then from the sixth album onward, the hard work has paid off. What I'd like to do is pull out some of these lesser-known Black Keys albums to shed some light on how these guys developed over the last decade and a half and see if we can maybe hear their evolution. And I think we can. Listen for changes in production, Dan's playing style, and Patrick's drum sound, not to mention the band's ability to write better songs. So, pay attention as we move throughout the show, okay? So, if we're going to do this, we have to start at the beginning. Dan and Patrick are both from Akron, Ohio. They met around age 8 or 9, and even though Dan was a jock and Patrick was a nerd, they became friends in high school, and both went to the University of Akron for a while, and occasionally they jammed together when Dan wasn't playing in a band called the Barn Burners. Dan stepped out first. He had this idea of being a singer-songwriter who played the bars in the area. But then no one would give him any out-of-town gigs without a demo. Since Patrick had a four-track recorder, he asked Patrick if he would help him make one of these demos. And to fill out Dan's sound, they called around and asked a bunch of musician friends to be part of the recording. On the appointed day, no one except Dan and Patrick showed up. So that left the two of them to form a band on their own. So they did. They recorded a demo that they sent to a bunch of different indie labels, all of which ignored them. Except one. A company out of Los Angeles called Alive. That demo, the one they sent out to all these indie labels, is like the holy grail to hardcore Black Keys fans. It's online somewhere, of course, but you really have to scour the interwebs for it. Dan and Patrick now consider it to be very, very substandard and really don't want it to be heard by anyone. Maybe that's why I couldn't find a decent copy of it. And there were three keys on this record, by the way. There was Dan, there was Patrick, and Gary Flumivar, a friend of Dan's younger brother who was also there to play keyboards. Alive went ahead and issued the first Black Keys album. It was called The Big Come Up, and was recorded in Patrick's parents' unfinished basement in Akron using an 8-track digi-recorder between January and March of 2002. It was released on May 14, 2002 on CD and in 10 different colors of vinyl, ranging from standard black to orange to pink to white. None of them came in a lot bigger than a 1,000, and they're now collector's items. Here's a sample of what the keys sounded like back then. Early Black Keys from 2002. The track is Leavin' Trunk. It's from the first record, The Big Come Up. And like I said, that album was released on an L.A.-based label called Alive. And it was their only Alive release. For the next record, which, by the way, was funded by both Dan and Patrick Mowing Lawns, they signed with another indie label called Fat Possum. They blitzed through the recording sessions in one 14-hour sprint, again in Kearney's basement. This one was called Thick Freakness, and like the first record, was loved by critics. This is when they made another decision. The manufacturer of a brand of mayonnaise, based in the UK, offered the keys 200,000 pounds for the use of one of their songs. I'm not sure which one, but they wanted it for a TV commercial. As hard as it was... I mean, they were just scraping by and chugging from gig to gig in a 1994 Chrysler van that they called the Grey Ghost. They turned it down because they figured that would damage their credit. Their parents were furious. Later, they'd have a change of heart and plenty of black key songs would be licensed for movies and TV and products by Sony, video games, jeans, Nissan, American Express, and even Victoria's Secret. These opportunities came along when paying the rent and staying on the road was more important than preserving some kind of anti-sellout stance. But back to Thick Freakness for a sec. The Keys spent a tremendous amount of time on the road, and they benefited from the rise of another garagey, punky two-piece band, the White Stripes. The bigger the White Stripes got, the more interest seemed to grow in the Black Keys. Here's a single from Thick Freakness. If you ever saw the movie School of Rock with Jack Black, you might recognize this. the Black Keys and set you free from their 2003 album, Thick Freakness, which, by the way, didn't translate very well for the Japanese release. So that's why they decided to call it Inazuma Rock and Blues. Inazuma means lightning in Japanese. When we come back, we'll continue with our Black Keys catch up and move to the third studio record, which was made in a very strange place. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. The title of this program is Catching Up with the Black Keys. It's a chance for latecomers to the group to sample the band's very long history. The first two Keys albums were recorded in the basement of Patrick Carney's parents, an unfinished space with cinderblock walls. The third album was recorded in a different spot, an abandoned tire factory in East Akron that was once run by General Tire, but they bailed out in 1982. It kind of made sense. Their hometown, Akron was the center of tire manufacturing. They even went to Firestone High School. So they took the second floor of the plant for $500 a month. They bought a recording console on eBay, which happened to have been owned by the guy who once did sound for Loverboy. But it was it was crap, and they ended up just leaving it in the factory when they were done. But it did the job. Oh, and all the recording tape they used was recycled stuff that they begged from their label. Because of various glitches with the space and the gear... It took five full months to make this record. In the end, they called it, well, what else, Rubber Factory. More good reviews, a slot at Lollapalooza, a shot on David Letterman. And it was their first album to break into the top 200 album chart. Okay, it's peaked at 143, but, you know, still... Hey. One of the singles from the third Black Keys album, Rubber Factory, that's called 10 A.M. Automatic. And as a note of trivia, the video was directed by comedian David Cross. If you're a hardcore fan, you're probably wondering why I haven't mentioned any of the non-album releases. Stuff that came in between the official albums. We missed a couple, and there's a bunch more coming out, but don't worry, we will get to them. I just want to stick to the albums for a moment. The fourth studio album was a 2006 release entitled Magic Potion. And for this one, they changed labels to a company called Nonsuch and relocated back into Patrick's basement with about $5,000 worth of crappy gear. Why would they go back? Well, they just like the vibe and the weird sounds that came out of that basement. If they're honest, the Keys aren't really happy with this one. They cheaped out on the mastering, and it shows. Not a lot of low end on this record. On the plus side, this record sold better than the other three, reaching into the top 100 on the American album charts and as high as number 12 in Australia. That was encouraging. And so was the fact that they were now playing decent-sized theaters of a 1,000 people or more. Your Touch, a single from the fourth Black Keys studio album, Magic Potion. That would be the last of their homemade-style recordings. It was time to step up into a professional studio with an actual outside producer directing things. And they wanted to work with Danger Mouse as the producer. Unfortunately, he was unavailable because he was committed to producing an album for Ike Turner. Yeah, Tina's crazy husband. But fortunately, that project fell through, and he was suddenly available. The studio they chose wasn't exactly what you'd call extravagant. It was a place called Suma in the tiny college town of Painesville, Ohio. Danger Mouse played a bunch of different instruments on the album, keyboards and bass mainly, and a few other musicians were called in to fill in with guitars and vocals and even clarinets. You're going to notice a change in Patrick Carney's drum sound too. At the time this album was being made in the summer of 2007, he was going through a whole John Bonham phase and started setting up his kit in the studio like Bonzo used to. And the result is a bigger, deeper, tighter sound. A $6 billion con. It didn't take long for it to spread like wildfire. You gotta take a look at this really crazy gold stock. A buddy of mine got in at a dime. Which destroyed lives and devastated communities. Every little town across the nation, people have shares in this. We lost everything. And to date, no one has been brought to justice. Somebody knows more than we know. The Six Billion Dollar Gold Scam from the BBC World Service and CBC. Search for The Six Billion Dollar Gold Scam wherever you get your podcasts. Listen for that as I play you this sample. From Attack and Release, that's the album. This is called I Got Mine. The second single from the fifth block keys studio album the record is called attack and release and the song is i got mine that's probably the band's biggest hit from their pre superstar era they almost always play it live today and it's been used in a ton of tv shows remember the cbc show the bridge that's the opening theme so that's five albums and seven years of steady growth when does the big breakthrough come with the next album and that's coming up next Now, back to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. We've covered seven years and five albums worth of the Black Keys' existence, paying close attention to how their sound evolved slowly but steadily, ranging from the quality of the songs to the musicianship to production. Everything went into setting things up for the band's commercial breakthrough. This is six albums in. That's Patience. This record, which came out on May 18, 2010, was called Brothers. I know the cover has a long, nonsensical title, but trust me when I say that Brothers is the proper name. The longer version is a tribute to Howling Wolf in an album that he released in 1969. Danger Mouse's contributions on the previous record were so much appreciated that he was brought back, but just for one song, and we'll get to that in a minute. First, we need to talk about the crisis between Dan and Patrick, I talked to both of them around this time, and I came away with the distinct impression that these guys were a bit sick of each other. The band was still okay, but they really needed time apart. Do you guys hang out together, I asked? No, it's not like we're friends, Patrick replied. When we're not working on band stuff, we go off and do our own things. The thing that probably kept the Black Keys together at this point was some stuff that initially kept them apart. Dan unilaterally went off and made a solo album without telling Patrick, which really pissed him off, and they didn't talk for months. Then there was the drama between Dan and Patrick's wife, Denise. They did not get along because Dan thought she was bad news, and apparently she was. Word is she cheated on him with a good friend, played a lot of mind games, and then made off with some money. I'm not sure, whatever. Patrick got very depressed, and he started drinking not a good idea at any time, especially when your marriage is failing. His attitude towards everything and everyone was, uh, well, it was bad. The band was in danger of completely falling apart. But Patrick woke up. He dumped his wife over the phone while the band was in Europe, and everything began to improve after that. It took a while, but things came back from the brink. Now, back to the album. A bunch of it was made at the famous Muscle Shoals Sound Studio in Alabama, a place used by the Rolling Stones and Leonard Skinner, Bob Dylan, and Bob Seger. It seemed like a really good idea, you know, head to a legendary studio to commune with its many awesome ghosts. Uh, But it wasn't. The place hadn't been properly used for 30 years The in-house gear was old and crappy and couldn't be used, so new digital equipment had to be brought in. But then work on the electrical lines on the street sent all kinds of stray voltage into the building, frying most of the modern stuff. But the acoustics of the place were amazing, especially with the natural echo chambers in the basement. For some reason, the sound of the recording rooms really emphasized the bass on this record. Focus on that as you listen to this one and only song from the album produced by Danger Mouse. It became a major hit. And it won the Keys for Grammy. To be Tighten up from the Black Keys, the winner of the 2011 Grammy Award for Best Rock Song by Duo or Group with Vocal. God, the Grammys have the sexiest category names, don't they? The Brothers record was big, too, with five Grammy nominations overall. It won for Best Alternative Album, and it picked up an award for Best Artwork. And I'm not sure if that really involved the trick with the physical CD. See, out of the package, the CD is black. But as it heats up with the laser in your CD player as it plays, it turns white. If you're in Australia, the CD is white and then turns black. And in Europe, it goes from silver to black. There wasn't much of a gap between Brothers in the next album, which was called El Camino. There was just 19 months between the two releases. And there were a couple of tours in between, which is just crazy in this day and age. But when you're on a roll and things are hot, you know, you just gotta go with it. Danger Mouse was available for the whole record, so he joined up with a band in Nashville in the spring of 2011. Dan had bought his own studio by this time, a place called Easy Eye Sound, so it was a really relaxing place to work, and all the gear functioned properly. But it's not like they walked in with a bunch of finished songs. In fact, they didn't have any music written. That's probably why they decided to keep things as simple as they did. Songs were composed around short hooks inspired by their favorite bands, like the Beatles and the Clash and the Cramps and Elvis and the Ramones. Danger Mouse was right in there, too, co-writing all 11 tracks. Never hurts to have this guy around. The album cover featured a very simple picture of an old Chrysler van, very similar to the Grey Ghost that carried them through so many tours in the old days. Even the first video was super simple. It's a single shot of Derek T. Tuggle dancing to the song. At the time, he was a security guard who was hired as an extra for the original video shoot, which featured a cast of almost four dozen people. But that video wasn't working. It sucked, really. So when Dan and Patrick were previewing different edits of it, they noticed Derek's dancing. That's it, they said. That's the video. Just put the camera on this guy and let him dance and lip sync. So they did. And when it was put up on YouTube, it grabbed nearly half a million views in just the first 24 hours. love 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 that video with Derek T. Tuggles dancing. That's Lonely Boy from the Black Keys' seventh studio album called El Camino. Huge success. Platinum sales around the planet. Triple platinum in Canada, by the way, where, with about half the population of the U.K., we bought almost as many copies. In fact, Canada is one of the Black Keys' best territories. Best rock album at the Grammys. Two more awards went to Just Lonely Boy. And as an added bonus, Dan Auerbach won Producer of the Year. After that, it was time for a break. I mean, they earned it, right? Turn Blue, the eighth album was recorded in fits and starts over more than a year and a half before being released on May 12, 2014. And just like Brothers was Patrick Kearney's divorce album, this one was informed by Dan's divorce. Spend some time with the lyrics and you'll hear all about it. And this was a weird divorce, too. Maybe you heard about the story about Dan and his wife fighting over custody of a lock of Bob Dylan's hair in the separation. That's That's actually not what it was about. They were battling over a poster where Bob had really big hair and they called that poster Bob Dylan's hair, and, well, you can see how things got lost in translation. A couple of things about this record. Its existence was announced by Mike Tyson, yes, him, in a tweet. The title was co-opted from a catchphrase by a dude named Gulardi who hosted a late-night horror movie show in Cleveland back in the 1960s, so it's kind of an homage to him. And the cover is also a nod to Goularty's interest in movies that feature mind control, brainwashing, and hypnotism. There were five singles from the album, so there's lots to choose from. And I want to play you the opener, which sounds like it could have been written by Pink Floyd back in the 1970s. And now that you've been reminded about Dan Auerbach's divorce situation during the writing and recording of this album, the title, Weight of Love makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Weight of Love from the Black Keys' eighth studio album, Turn Blue, which brings us up to date with that part of the Keys' discography. But there's so much more material that we can access. In 2009, they recorded a record called Black Rock, which was a collaboration with a guy named Damon Dash. Lots of R&B and hip-hop guests on that album. It's very good. There were at least two EPs, one of which is called The Moan from 2004, and a tribute record called Chulahoma, which is dedicated to a blues singer named Junior Kimbrough. Dan was a big fan of this guy in high school. In fact, listening to Kimbrough while smoking a lot of dope helped him decide to pursue the guitar full-time. Dan Arbach has that 2009 solo album entitled Keep It Hid. He's also in demand as a producer. He did a record by Dr. John and another by a group called Hacienda. At around the same time that record came out, Patrick Carney was watching an indie band called Drummer, who was signed to his Audio Eagle Records. All the guys in the band were drummers with other bands, and Patrick joined them in the studio where he played bass. He produced part of the Sheepdogs 2012 debut record, along with albums by Tennis and Tobias Jesso Jr., And before we wrap up, I want to play you something from an official bootleg. It was recorded like a bootleg, but was released with the approval of the Black Keys. It's simply called Live in Austin and dates all the way back to a show they played on October twenty-fourth, two 2003 at a place called Emo's when the band was touring the Thick Freakness album. And how is this for a modern twist? The album's first release came as a podcast. you have no fans Pass it back, a yeah. Pass it back, yeah. An official bootleg from the Black Keys, that's Hard Row, an early single, captured in Austin, Texas on October 24th, 2003. Back in a moment. More of the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. There. If you're a latecomer to the Black Keys, you're on your way to being all caught up. And even if you've been with the band for a while, this is a reminder of just how much stuff they've done since 2001. And we only touched on things like collectibles, side projects, weird videos, and the various tours. If you're so inclined, you have a lot of work ahead of you if you're going to become a Black Keys superfan. Meanwhile, watch for me at my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com. And you are getting the newsletter, Right. Free every weekday. Tons of music news for you by 10 a.m. Eastern. Plus, I'm on Twitter and Facebook, Instagram, and Google+. And if you want to send me just an email, the address is alan, that's A-L-A-N, at alancross.ca. Bottom line is that if you need me, you can find me. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play.